Our story opens with 12 brothers. That's right, 12. Their dad is Jacob, the son of Isaac, the son of Abraham. You know, the father Abraham had many sons. That guy. Anyway, number 11 out of Jacob's 12 sons, this dude, his name is Joseph. Now, for all you moms and dads out there, I know you don't have favorites, but Jacob does. He loves Joseph the most, and everybody knows it. He even gives Joseph this flashy, colorful coat just to rub it in all their faces. Well, that ticks off the other brothers enough that they start planning to kill Joseph. Yikes. They are dead set on showing their pipe-dreaming brother he's not as special as everyone says. Certainly not special enough to fulfill whatever fancy purpose he thinks God's calling him to. Then Joseph's brothers decide, hey, you know what'll really teach that little punk a lesson? If we sell him into slavery. And so Joseph gets hauled off to Egypt. At this point, you gotta wonder if Joseph thinks any other surprises might be coming his way. I mean, what else could possibly go wrong? Yeah, about that. Joseph becomes a servant in the house of a guy named Potiphar, and Potiphar's wife accuses Joseph of some pretty risque stuff. So Joseph ends up in prison. Looks like Joseph's situation has gone from bad to worse. You certainly couldn't blame Joseph for feeling forgotten or like there's no way God could still use him to do anything important. But thankfully, Joseph knows God, and God has something special in store. While Joseph's in jail, he gets on the Pharaoh's good side. So Pharaoh sets him free and basically makes him his right-hand man. That's when Egypt starts going through a famine. And guess who comes to buy food? Joseph's brothers who had it out for him. Now, Joseph could easily get his revenge, but he ends up giving his brothers food, forgiveness, and he ultimately saves his entire family. Turns out God did have a big purpose for Joseph's life, even in the midst of some seriously terrible stuff happening. Just listen to what Joseph tells his brothers. You guys planned all this for evil, but God planned it for good, to save people's lives. And that's the same promise God makes all of us today. He will use our stories for good when we begin finding purpose in uncertainty. Have you ever had one of those why me moments? You know what I'm talking about when you bury your face in your hands, you prop your elbows up with your knees and you mutter to yourself, why me or why us or why now? You know, sometimes we know why. It's because we're reaping the consequences of what we know we should not have said or we should not have done. But then there are other times when it makes no sense at all. When it feels like for all the good that we do, we're being rewarded with evil. Those are the times when it's really hard to understand why. Joseph, who we've been looking at for the last several weekends, had been thrown into prison, falsely accused by his boss's wife of trying to rape her. Can you imagine the why me questions that were going through his mind? Put yourself in Joseph's place. What are the kind of questions you'd be asking by now? I'd be asking questions like, you know, God, why did my brothers hate me so much? Why did they throw me in a pit? Why did they sell me into slavery? Why did my boss's wife accuse me of trying to rape her? Nothing could be further from the truth. I mean, he knows what kind of woman she is. Why did he listen to her? And why am I going through this? And yeah, you get it, right? Maybe you are in a why me moment in your life right now. Wondering why you're going through all the stuff that you're having to deal with. Do you know that the Apostle Peter has an answer for us. Uh, as he wrote the believers in his day who were going through a lot of why me moments, 
reaping terrible consequences for trying to promote Christ and live a Christ-like life. He wrote these words to them. He said in 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 20, Of course you get no credit for being patient if you are beaten for doing wrong, but, that's important, he says, if you suffer for doing good and endure it patiently, God is pleased with you. In other words, instead of asking all the why questions, right? What he's saying is, instead, focus on enduring this patiently. It pleases God. It yields a principle that goes simply like this. It pleases God when you learn, so that's a process, right? That happened overnight. When you learn to endure the difficulties he allows in your life for his purposes. In other words, what matters isn't so much what I'm going through or why I'm going through it as much as enduring patiently. Whatever the trial is, glorifies God because God's in control. He's working out his purposes. He's using this trial or this difficult situation in my life to forge something in me, to bring Christ out of me as I learn to trust and I learn to yield to his presence in my life. Can you believe that? I don't know if you've ever seen the cartoon strip uh, featuring the character Ziggy, the guy with the big bulbous nose and the large bald head. He's standing on a mountaintop and he's looking up far into the sky where there's this lonely cloud and he cries out and he says, will my life be on hold forever? <laughs> Maybe you can relate a little bit to Ziggy. It's like your life is on hold. It's like, how long is this going to last? How long am I going to have to endure all of this? How long am I going to have to be in this prison of injustice or in this prison of cancer or in this prison of loneliness or abandonment or in this prison of joblessness or having a job I don't like or in this situation where I keep waiting for the right person to come along to spend the rest of my life with or, and you can fill in the blank. Those times it just feels like you're on hold for an eternity. How do you deal with that? How do we deal with the on hold moments? Well, I want to look at three principles arising out of Joseph's life. And then we're going to look at some other principles to help us cope with these things that I think you're going to find tremendously helpful in experiencing God's presence, even in the challenging times of life. So let's look at the first one. First one is simply recognize and embrace the sovereignty of God in your life and circumstances. So recognize and embrace the sovereignty, that is the control of God, in your life and in your circumstances. I don't know if you've ever seen the, the little cartoon that talks about, you know, an ad for a missing dog. It goes something like this. Missing dog, blind in one eye, three legs, crooked tail, and answers to the name Lucky. Well, maybe uh, you can relate to that because you feel like life is all about luck and, you know, right now your life seems very unlucky. I mean, you look at Joseph's life and you take an attitude like that and you say, he's one of the most unlucky people that there is, except for at the very end when everything kind of turns out and works out okay for him. Hey, listen, if you believe in the sovereignty of God, there is no such thing as luck. The reality is God's in control of every situation. 
And we get a picture of this toward the end of the narrative of Joseph's life and experience. He's in Egypt, and his father Jacob has died, and his brothers are very worried that now that Jacob is dead, that Joseph's going to have a change of heart and try to get even with them. And somehow Joseph hears about this, and he calls his brothers in, and he speaks to them. Listen to what he says. But Joseph said to them, Do not fear, for am I in the place of God? As for you, you meant evil against me. That's the human situation, right? You meant evil against me. Okay, but look what he says. Here we go again. But God meant it for good to bring about that many people should be kept alive as they are today. So do not fear. I will provide for you and your little ones. Thus he comforted them and spoke kindly to them. See, Joseph recognizes what his brothers can't see and understand. That even though their plot was filled with evil, he recognizes that God can even take what human beings intend for evil, and God can turn it around, and he can bring great good out of that particular situation. You see, when you believe in the sovereign control of God, think about this with me. When you believe in the sovereign control of God over your life, I mean, it, honestly, it de-stresses your life. You feel so much freer. You're able to stay so much more focused. You're able to just trust that God knows what he's doing, even though you can't figure everything out. You become less panicked, less anxious, and able to move through life with a sense of peace. Listen, as Jesus said, that passes all understanding. Right now, where you are, in what you're going through, and what you're experiencing, do you believe that God's in control? Though it may feel like it's all out of control. I love what Isaiah brings out in Isaiah chapter 55, when he talks about the fact that the ways of God are so much higher than our ways. His ways are not our ways. And thank God his ways are not our ways. I'm glad God doesn't do things the way humans do it because we are constantly screwing it up when we try it our way. The amazing thing is that God still carries out his purposes even with all the human interference that we deal with in the days that we live in. You know, I think Paul had this idea of God's sovereignty in mind when he wrote those words found in Romans chapter 8, which we looked at before. And we know that God causes everything to work together for the good of those who love God and are called according to his purposes for them. So the big question is, are you trusting in God's sovereignty? Are you recognizing it and embracing it in the course of the things that are happening in your life? Let's look at a second principle together. And that principle is this. Recognize and embrace the fact that in this life, you will experience mistreatment. It's not if, it's when. You will experience mistreatment, but instead of treating it as misfortune, let it mobilize your maturity in Christ. I tried to put a bunch of M's in there so you could remember it. But the whole idea is we're going to be mistreated. But instead of, you know, letting that misfortune get to us, instead, let it mobilize your maturity in Christ. So what are you going through right now? What are you facing right now? How can you allow God to use it to help you mature your relationship with him? 
Chuck Swindoll, in his book on Joseph's life, talks about four kinds of ways that we oftentimes are mistreated in life, drawn out from Joseph's own experience. Here's one of them. He says, you know, sometimes we experience undeserved treatment by family or friends, and maybe that's what you're going through or have been through by a friend or a partner in, at work or in your marriage or some other setting. Secondly, he says, unexpected restriction of circumstances. And I was thinking to myself, boy, can we all relate to that with what we've been through with COVID, right? Number three, he talks about untrue accusations that are sometimes made about us. Boy, I've had those made about me in my life. How about you? And number four, unfair abandonment. When it seems like, you know, we've been abandoned and left and forsaken. You know, if you look at the life of Jesus, he experienced all of those kinds of things happening to him in his own life. And that's why continuously Joseph is a reminder to us of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. Now he dealt with the mistreatment that, that he received and endured and went through. So the question becomes, how, how do I then let this mistreatment and these seemingly misfortunes, how do I let them actually mature me in Christ? And what I want to do is look at a few principles that will help us flesh this out. First of all, what we need to do is let the trials of life the trials of life focus us on the presence of God. Let the trials of life focus you on the presence of God. You know what's so amazing? Is that here's our friend Joseph in jail, in prison, right? And yet he is so aware that God is with him. Just, just read the text there in Genesis 40. He's so aware of God's presence. You see, you can't, you can't keep God out. Prison bars can't keep God out. Cancer cannot keep God out. Listen, not even death can keep God out. David wrote, Yea, though I walk the valley of shadow of death, I'll fear no evil. Why? For you are with me even in the tunnel, even in the valley of death. I can depend on the fact that God is with me. He'll walk with me all the way through. Are you aware? Do you have the sense that you're not alone, that, that God indeed is with you? Dr. Richard Swenson is um, a physician and uh, a scientist and a futurist. He's a brilliant man. He loves God. And uh, he's lectured at medical schools. He's lectured at Mayo Clinic. So, I mean, this guy knows his stuff. And he likes to write about science and God and the things that we can learn and understand. And I was reading a, a, a book that he wrote, and in it he was talking about the fact that we breathe every day about 23,000 times. That's like 630 million times in an average lifetime. And he says, when we take a breath in, we breathe in about 150 million molecules that Jesus breathed in when he was here on this earth. That's right. Every time you take a breath, like right now, I just breathed in 150 million molecules that Jesus breathed in when he was here on this earth. And then he kind of concludes as he's talking about it. And he says, whenever we inhale, Jesus is there with us, sharing himself minute by minute, breath by breath, molecule by molecule. It is one of the many ways he intimately shares life with us. 
He's that close to us. He's not only with us, but the Bible teaches us that he is also, listen, in us. How else can we take our misfortunes, our, our mistreatment, and turn them into an opportunity to mature with Christ? Let the trials of life activate your faith in God. Let the trials of life activate your faith in God. You know, uh, Joseph in that dungeon could have let his experience totally douse his faith. But you see him in the dungeon and it seems to activate his faith. It's like his faith comes alive. He's not, he's not going to just sit there and mope and feel sorry for himself. Because what he understands is that he's not there for Potiphar. He's not there for Pharaoh. He's there for God. And as the Bible says, faith without works is dead. Therefore, given even those terrible circumstances, he's going to do whatever he can do in order to glorify and honor his God. He's not going to quit. He's not going to give up. I love what uh, the prophet Micah says in uh, Micah chapter 7, verse 8. Rejoice not over me, O my enemy. When I fall, I shall rise. When I sit in darkness, the Lord will be a light to me. And I love the words of Winston Churchill. Remember these words? Never give in. Never, 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 never. In nothing great or small, large or petty, never give in except to conviction of honor and good sense. Never yield to force. Never yield to the apparently overwhelming might of the enemy. That is so Joseph, isn't it? He just never gives up. He just never gives in. He's hanging on to the sovereignty of God, and he believes that somehow God is using all these terrible circumstances in his life to forge him, to shape him, to make him into something that God's going to use at the time and in the future as, God believe, as Joseph believes that God has plans for his life. Do you believe that right now? Do you believe that God knows what he's doing in and with your life? Well, let's look at another way that God uses the things that happen in our lives to mature us. Let the trials of life cause you to persevere. It's kind of like what Micah was talking about, what Winston Churchill was talking about. How do I let these things help me persevere? Elizabeth Elliot, in one of her books, talks about what do you do when you hit the proverbial wall, so to speak, and you're stuck in life like you may feel right now. And I love the simplistic answer that she gives. When you hit the wall and you feel stuck in life, then just do the next thing. You can only do what is next, she says. So do the obvious next thing. And that's what I see Joseph doing all the time. I'm in this, you know, I'm in a pit. I'm in this home as a slave. Now I'm in this dungeon. So I get up today. What is the next thing to do? I'm just going to do the next thing. I'm not going to worry about tomorrow, next week, next month, next year. What's just the next thing to do? I'm going to do it. Martin Luther King Jr. wrote these words. He said, whatever your life's work is, do it well. Do it well. A man should do his job so well that the living, the dead, and the unborn could do it no better. If it falls to your lot to be a street sweeper, sweep streets like Michelangelo, 
painted pictures, like Shakespeare wrote poetry, like Beethoven composed music. Sweep streets so well that all the hosts of heaven and earth will have to pause and say, here lived a great street sweeper who swept his job well. <laughs> if you look at the life of Joseph, because he believed in the sovereignty of God, he never gave up faith. And whatever he did, he did it as to the glory of God. So I have a little challenge for you. I want to challenge you this coming week to sit down and look at your day planner, look at your schedule. And as you look at the things you're going to do, like go to Costco to buy some groceries or drop the kids off at school or uh, have an important meeting at work or, you know, visit with some girlfriends or whatever it's going to be. I want you to mentally make a note to yourself that you're going to look at that calendar and you're going to look at every event right before it happens and you're going to dedicate that event and your attitude and your presence to God. And you're just going to do the next thing, the best you can for God's glory, even the difficult things, even the challenging things. You're going to do them for God's glory and God's greatness. All right? Now, what I want to do is I, I, want, to, I, want, to, um, I want to move on into Joseph's story a little deeper. And we come to that scene where two prisoners show up in this jail. Where, by the way, scholars think that Joseph may have been in this prison for up to 12 years. Can you imagine? And in come two new prisoners. They are the, the chief butler or cupbearer and the baker. And let's watch what happens. Here we go. Sometime later, Pharaoh's chief cupbearer and chief baker offended their royal master. Pharaoh became angry with these two officials and he put them in the prison where Joseph was, in the palace of the captain of the guard. They remained in prison for quite some time. The captain of the guard assigned them to Joseph, who looked after them. So Joseph's been looking after them for quite some time, okay? While they were in prison, Pharaoh's cupbearer and baker each had a dream on a certain night. And each dream had its own meaning. When Joseph saw them the next morning, he noticed they both looked upset. Why do you look so worried today, he asked them. And they replied, we both had dreams last night, and no one can tell us what they mean. Interpreting dreams is God's business, Joseph replied. Go ahead and tell me your dreams. Now, if you had been Joseph in that situation, I think you might have handled these guys. You know, I would have been tempted to say, dreams? I don't want to hear about dreams. I've had dreams, and they didn't turn out very good for me. Or I might say, guys, move over. <laughs> you think you got it rough in prison? Let me tell you about my dreams and how everything's all turned out. It isn't anything compared to what, you know, your dreams aren't anything compared to what I've been through and I'm going through. But Joseph doesn't do that. It's amazing. He's been looking after these prisoners and he notices that something's changed in their countenance and he's actually very concerned for them. So one of the ways, again, that we turn the bad things that happen into our lives for opportunities to grow and mature is this. Let the trials of life make you more compassionate towards those who suffer alongside of you and with you. 
rather than focusing on himself and all his concerns and all the things he could gripe and complain about. Instead, Joseph is focused on the other. See, when you believe in the sovereignty of God, when you believe that God's in control and God is doing something in your life that you may not necessarily understand, you're good, you see, because you know God is at work. It frees you up then to be used by God to minister to others instead of being so self-focused, which is oftentimes at least what happens in my life when things start to go bad. I retreat into myself and I'm trying to defend myself, protect myself, and look out for myself, and I lose sight of those who are around me. But when, like Joseph, we accept the sovereignty of God, we believe that God's moving and shaping and working our lives, it frees us up. Be used by God in the lives of those who are around us. Which then leads us to another principle, and that is let the trials of life then allow you to exercise the gifts that God has given to you. And Joseph has this very unique and very special gift that God's given to him. Not only the ability to receive dreams from God, but by the power of God then to interpret those dreams so that people have an understanding of what God is saying. It was unique to Joseph. And he used it to help them understand what was going on in their dreams and going on in their lives. Now, the, the truth is, there is some good news and bad news. And I'll let you read the rest of the story there in Genesis to hear how the dreams get interpreted. But basically what he says to the baker is the bad news is Pharaoh's going to take you out of here and you're going to be impaled alive. and You're going to die. Evidently, there had been some gossip or some kind of a plot and the baker had been found guilty. But the cupbearer, who really is, is kind of the, the man who is responsible to taste everything before it's put in front of Pharaoh in case it's being, been poisoned, which, by the way, could be a great job, a really bad job. He's found to be innocent, and he's restored to his position before Pharaoh. And Joseph says, before he goes, he says, Now, when you get there, remember me. Don't forget me. Plead my case. I truly am an innocent man. You know me. Remember me. Now, just a quick little digression. I want you to know that God has also given you a very unique shape, which we're going to look at next weekend. And we're going to talk about how God has shaped you to carry out his purpose in and through your life, to be like Joseph, to become like a savior to your family, to your community, to the world around you, to give them the hope that there is a God who loves them, and that this God can also change their lives. He shaped each one of us uniquely. So don't miss next weekend when we explore that together. But I want you to notice something. It's kind of our third and last principle here. You know, we've talked about the fact we need to recognize God's sovereignty. I said we need to recognize and embrace the fact that when God allows mistreatment to come into our lives, we need to allow those misfortunes to actually be used by him to mobilize our maturity. And I gave you ways that God can do that. But here's the thing I want you to wrap up with, and that's simply this, that Joseph maintained a spirit of optimism when he could have become very sullen and very cynical. Because there's about two years that go by when the cupbearer is released and Joseph hopes he goes to Pharaoh and pleads his case. And the Bible tells us that he forgot all about Joseph. Boy, that's real gratefulness, isn't it? 
been in the prison with Joseph. Joseph looked after him. Joseph told him what his dream means. Joseph says, remember me. And for two years, he forgets until Pharaoh's dreams jar his memory. He says, oh yeah, I remember there was this Hebrew I, I, I was in prison with and he interpreted my dreams and maybe he could help you out, oh Pharaoh. Now, how do you feel when somebody forgets you? How do you feel when you've been kind of lost in the dust, so to speak? I don't know about you, but it is such an opportunity to become resentful, to become bitter, to become angry, become cynical. But never once in the story of Joseph do we ever read anything like that. He just seems to be able to maintain this, this sense of steadiness. You never hear him complain. You never hear him get angry. You never hear him raising his fists to God or even asking the question, why me? Why now? That's because Joseph had this sense of godly optimism that no matter what, God was going to be glorified and that's all that mattered. And that no matter what, whatever his situation, because he had no idea he'd be second in command of the world someday. He just believed that no matter what the situation was, he was going to finish strong by living for God, by doing what is right. I want to share with you a story. It's, it's somewhat of a human story, but it's a powerful story of the power of optimism. Charles Swindoll shares it again in his fine commentary on Joseph's life. It has to do with Thomas Edison. And I'm going to, I'm going to read you the story. It's, it's, it's rather profound. He said there's a, a story about Thomas Edison that re appeared in the Reader's Digest. It was written by his son, uh, Charles Edison. And in it, he recounts the great fire that burned down Edison's lab in 1914. Perhaps you've read or heard about it. Charles writes, one December evening, the cry of fire echoed throughout the plant. Spontaneous combustion had broken out in the film room. Within moments, all the packing compounds, the celluloid for records, film and other flammable goods had gone up in a whoosh. When I couldn't find father, I became concerned. Was he safe? With all his assets going up in smoke, would his spirit be broken? He was 67, not an age to, you know, begin anew. Then I saw him in the plant yard running toward me. Where's mom? He shouted. Go get her. Tell her to bring her friends. They'll never see a fire like this again. Can you imagine? At 5.30 the next morning, when the fire was barely under control, he called his employees together and announced, we're rebuilding. One man was told to lease all the machine shops in the area, another to obtain a wrecking crane from the Erie Railroad Company, then almost as an afterthought, he added, oh, by the way, anybody know where we can get some money? Later on, he explained, you can always make capital out of disaster. We've just cleared out a bunch of old rubbish. We'll build bigger and better on these ruins. With that, he rolled up his coat for a pillow, curled up on a table, immediately fell asleep. End of story. You know, I think... Joseph possessed a godly, optimistic spirit and believed that when his life was on hold, God 
was preparing him for something very exciting. Maybe you feel like your life is on hold right now. I wonder what God is preparing to do with your life. Let's pray. Would you bow your heads with me? You know, in these next few moments as you're watching at home or one of our campuses, wherever you might be, could you just, could you just be still? Could you think with me about how Joseph points to our Lord Jesus Christ? You know, Jesus believed in the sovereignty of his father while he was here on this earth. He believed that his father was in control of every situation. He knew that his father loved him and he lived in that love. I want you to know that the father loves you too. Jesus knew that the father loved him even when he was going through trials. And I want you to know that the father loves you right now in whatever trial you're facing. Jesus experienced tremendous mistreatment. Yet he allowed that mistreatment to be an opportunity for him to carry out his father's will, to die for those who mistreated him, to show the love of God when he was being beaten, when he was being mocked, when he was being spat at. All he wanted to do was glorify his father and save you and save me. See, Jesus was eternally optimistic that despite the cross and the grave, he would rise again and bring his kingdom to be in the hearts and lives of men and women and boys and girls just like you and me. And someday, his kingdom will come physically on earth as it is in heaven. We want to invite you today to celebrate Holy Communion together. So if you haven't grabbed your elements, why don't you get those now? You know, those elements, that little piece of bread and that red juice remind us of how much God loves us, that he would give his only son. It reminds us of Jesus who gave his life for you and me. In these next few moments, could you just silently speak to God? Confess any sin that's in your life, any wrong spirit, any wrong attitude, perhaps some grumbling, complaining, just ask him to forgive you. In these moments, could you simply say to him, God, I accept your sovereignty. I don't understand my situation, but I accept your sovereignty in it, Lord. God, you know the trials I'm going through. Please use them to bring Christ out in me. I'm going to go through my trials for your glory. And Lord, despite my situation, I'm optimistic about where I'm going to spend eternity. And how are you going to use my life? Let me give you a few moments to prayerfully consider that.
Now, if you please take those elements with me. Those of you who have the little cups that we provide our campuses, you just peel off that top little celluloid cellu layer. I can get mine off. And you'll find that underneath is a little wafer. This represents the body of Christ that was given for you and for me. Would you take it with me? Remembrance of him. The second layer has the juice. And the juice represents the blood of our Lord Jesus Christ that was shed on the cross for you and me. Jesus said that his blood is a new covenant with us. That the old has passed away. That all things become new. That we are cleansed and forgiven. We drink in thanksgiving for what Jesus has done for us. Thank you, Father, for this meal, this reminder of your love for us. Help us now to go in your grace and your goodness. In Jesus' name, amen. God bless you all.